Okay, so we've been in this series on marriage, and today we're going to enter into another part of that, and today's message is entitled Friends with Benefits. You guys know what a friend with benefit is, right? Do you guys ever use this language when you were in high school? Yes, so, so you know what the Urban Dictionary, how the Urban Dictionary would define the word friends with benefits, and raise your hand if you ever had a friend with benefits. I did. I used to have friends with benefits. I'm looking for more, actually, to tell you the truth. More friends with benefits, and I'm going to explain that in a minute. And so, <laughs> in case you do know what the definition, urban definition is. Today, my thrust and, and point of my message is that I want us to see our spouse as a true friend with benefits. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, here's a couple of quotes about friendship. Oscar Wilde, a famous poet and playwright, said this. He said, true friends will stab you in the front. That makes sense, doesn't it? Don't you want a friend who stabs you right to your front, not in your back, of course. And then here's another quote by um, Jim Morrison. Anyone know who that is? Okay, Jim Morrison. He said, a friend is someone who gives you total freedom to be yourself. And I hear a lot of people say that. But then I start to think, which one is it? Is a true friend someone who stabs you in the front or someone who just lets you be yourself? There's, a, there's obviously a difference of opinion there, right? Jim Morrison wants people to let him be himself, and we do too. We want people to just leave me alone and let me be myself. But Oscar Wilde says a real friend, a true friend, will stab you in the front. And today I want to make a suggestion that a real friend, a true friend, is a friend who will call you out when you need to be called out and stick you when he needs to stick you. Does that make sense? But we don't really necessarily want friends like that, but then at the same time, we really necessarily do want them. Uh, here, here's, here's one of my favorite people in, in the world. His name is Rich Mullins. He used to say this about friendship. Um, he said, what I look for in a friendship is someone who will beat you up, you get into this big fight, and then the winner will take the other guy home on the bike. And so he had, he, he, Rich Mullins was a celibate. He did not get married, and he had, a, a, you know, one or two really good friends. And he, he talked about his friends that way. I want a friend who we can get in a fight with, and at the same time, we're always going to be friends. And we're just going to, we're going to get in a fight, we're going to punch him in the nose, and then we're going to say, hey, you want to get pizza? Yeah, okay, that's it. That's the kind of friendship that real friendship is. So today we're going to talk about friends with benefits, and my goal is to make us understand that all friends, all real friends, our friends with benefits. Now, I think that as we get older, when we were young, we had lots of friends, right? We had lots of friends, and then as we get older, maybe this is true for you, it was for me, you begin to become more selective of who you would call friends. These are people who I can trust, people I can walk with, people who would stand with me. You may have 400 friends on Facebook, and they all know what you ate for dinner because they saw a picture of it, but do they really know you? And do they really care about you? Are they really more like Jim Morrison friends who are like, hey, I'm just going to let you be you. I don't care what you eat or what you tweet. Just, you know, just let, you know, I'll let you be you. A, but a real friend kind of cares, don't you think? Friends, you shouldn't eat that. And you shouldn't tweet that. <laughs> I want to let you know as a friend. Let, let, I started studying this concept of friendship. And it's an important thing. Obviously, when we think of social media, friendships all over the place. And we all know it's not real friendship. It's not the Oscar Wilde type of friendship. It's more like the Jim Morrison type of friendship. But the Bible actually has a lot to say about friendship. Let me show you some verses. For instance, Proverbs 17 says this, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. So what I'm seeing here is that you're going to, if you have a brother, you're going to fight with your brother. Raise your hand if you know that's true. 
right? If you have a sister, you know, women, I've, you know what sisters are like, right? And so, so a brother and a sister can, can be, a, a, you know, born for adversity, but a friend is there at all times. Or Proverbs 18 says this, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So we don't want to have lots of friends. We want to have one friend who's a real friend, not just a bunch of companions, but a real friend, and he sticks closer to a brother. So what I'm gathering here from Proverbs, one definition of friendship is, I'm noticing the word sticks, okay? Someone who sticks with you, sticks with you through the end, closer than a brother, sticks with you. So, so one friendship is is that. The other one is this. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So wounds, faithful are the wounds of a friend. So a friend is going to also give you wounds. And an enemy is going to give you compliments, right? And here's another verse, Proverbs 27. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. So from these two Proverbs, I see another thing about friendship. Friendship is what um, you're going to get wounds. They're going to hurt you. This one says they're going to they're counsel you, earnest counsel. So the first set of Proverbs says that a true friend sticks with you, and then the second set of Proverbs says a true friend, well, sticks you. So there's a lot of sticks when it comes to friendship, I guess. You're going to have someone who sticks by you, someone who sticks it to you when you need someone to stick it to you. And this is what the Bible calls real friendship. And so today, in my sermon, what I want to do is give you two points, two-point message today. The first point is, let's talk about friendship. What is friendship? And then at the second point is, how does friendship give us a benefit? What benefit do we have from friendship? And then in the end, all of that's going to be of course, related to our spouse. My goal is for us each to see our spouse as our friend. All right, some more verses in the Bible. You guys know this one? You've heard this before? As iron sharpens iron, so one man, some, someone can say it, sharpens another. This is, a, this is a very popular verse. I grew up in the promise keeper generation, and this was like the key verse of the promise keepers. We're going to sharpen each other, men, men, you know, sharpen one another. But I want you to know that if we translate it differently, using different... Um, words to translate the Hebrew, it could read like this, as iron sharpens iron, so friend sharpens friend. And that, the net Bible, by the way, isn't, isn't necessarily an exclusive Bible that tries to take man out of the, out of the story. It, it, it isn't. It's actually, I'm translating it more correctly. A better way to, to translate that word for as man sharpens one another is a friend, because a true friend is the one who sharpens. You can't be sharpened by just some regular guy. You've got to be sharpened by someone who's your friend. Let me, let me give you some more. If we took like a literal translation, there's a Bible called the Young's Literal Translation. What a literal translation does is it takes the, the Hebrew and it literally translates it word for word for word. And so it sounds kind of like Yoda most of the time. And this is what a literal wooden translation would sound like. Iron by iron as sharpened, and man sharpens the face of his friend. That's a literal wooden translation of that um, proverb. So iron by iron is sharpened. We know that, right? You take two pieces of iron, ching, ching, eventually you're going to get some sharpening, and a man sharpens the face of his friend. Huh, what does that mean? One more verse. Iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance. Instead of using the word face, he uses countenance of a friend. So what does this mean? The proverb is saying that people, friends, are like swords. They have a handle, and they have a face, 
And when you take those two faces and strike them against each other, it creates a sharpening effect. It sharpens them. It makes them sharper. And swords want to be sharper, right? So when two swords, swords strike each other's face, they get sharper. In the same sense, when you've got two friends, two friends who strike each other's face, they're going to become sharper people. Or better yet, let's say their countenance. When you have a friend who strikes you, sticks it to you, sticks by you through thick and thin, tells you like it is, doesn't let you remain yourself, but helps to, to stab you in the front, then you've got a change of countenance. How you act, how you think, how you even look. Is this true? Have you ever had a friend who brought you down and then you didn't want to be around that friend anymore because every time you're around that friend, it's like, it's so depressing and draining, and they change your countenance. But if you've got another friend, it can build you up and make you stronger. So a true friend sharpens each other's face. Can I tell you this? You're, if you're married, you have a spouse, and you do the same thing to each other. And you know it, right? You sharpen each other's countenance. And yes, there's striking involved. And yes, there's stabbing involved and there's pain. But you, in the end, will either make each other better and sharper or duller. Am I right? Someone say, amen. So uh, we've, been, we've been studying Ephesians 5 loosely, talk about marriage. And in Ephesians 5, it says this. I'm going to spare you from reading all of it. I'm just going to read this one verse. It says, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own body but nourishes and cherishes it. So, so again, this morning, what I'm hoping to encourage you in is to view your spouse as a true friend who sticks by you, of course, but also sticks it to you and strikes you and sharpens you. Now, last week, we talked about fighting in marriage. The number one thing was stop or never win a fight is what it was. Stop thinking about the me, 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 but only think about the we. Because when you're in a marriage, the two become one flesh. And <coughs> And so if you're fighting each other and one wins, the other one loses. And so what ends up happening is you end up losing because you're one flesh. Today's message is going to take it a step further. Stop thinking about the me. Think, so let's say I'm here and my beautiful wife is there. Okay, just imagine her there um, like I am. Okay, so there she is. There's me. Instead of me thinking of me and her thinking of her, we're together thinking of the oneness that we have, which is the we that was last week. This week is this. Instead of me thinking about me, and I am going to be thinking about we, but what if I took it a little further, and instead of just thinking about the we, I looked beyond the we and thought about she? And what if everything that I do and say and think, and, and what if I make my goal to make her happy? Wouldn't it? And if we flipped it and she says, I'm going to stop thinking about me, I'm going to think about the we, but I'm going to look beyond the we and I'm going to make he happy, he the best person that he can be. Now you've got a pretty different kind of marriage, don't you think? So stay away from me, focus on the we, but even more than that, if both of us are thinking about the he and the she, I guess what I'm trying to say is, don't think about me, think about me, we, so that you can go beyond that to think about the he and the she, so that he and she can think about what the other she and he can be, the best be that he or she that they can be. Amen? And then they'll have a wonderful we. <laughs> That's what Paul's saying in this passage. When we become one flesh, the man becomes his body. I mean, the woman becomes part of his body, and no man doesn't take care of his body which isn't always true, just obviously. <laughs> I, can, I can attest to that. <laughs> 
But no man purposely says, I don't care about my body. I don't care. I don't care. You take care you're going to take care of yourself in some way, whether you're doing it healthily or not. So no man doesn't care about his own body or hates his own body. He nourishes it and he cherishes it. He eats. So we don't take care of it in the sense that we exercise, but we take care of it in the sense that we eat. Amen. <laughs> but never starve this body of mine. <laughs> and I cherish it. So um, that's, what, that's what marriage is about. When God created the woman, we talked about this a few weeks ago, he created a helpmate for her, or another way of translating that is a companion, a friend, someone who was really with him, through th- could stick it with him and stick it to him. And, and in fact, when she was made, when the woman was made and brought to Adam, Adam actually sang a song. In, in, the, in the Hebrew text, he sings a song. It's a soul song, actually, written by Etta Jane, um, and it goes like this. At last. Do you know that song? I don't know the words to song. That's what he says. He says, at last. At last. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woe, man, because she came from man. She was taken out of man. She came from me. And that's what Paul says. No man hates his own body, but cherishes it, nourishes it. This woman came from me. She's me. She's me. I'm going to care for her and take and, and cherish her. So again, we're not thinking about me. We are thinking about we, but even more than that, this is my body. This is the bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. In fact, last week when we were talking about fighting, we looked at the Song of Solomon, and the woman says the same thing about Solomon. She says, this is my lover, this is my friend, which in Hebrew is almost an exact repetition, almost, almost exactly what Adam said in the garden. At last, at last, this is my lover, this is my friend, this is my companion, this is me. It's an amazing thing. At last, Timothy Keller says what he's essentially saying is this. At last, what, you want me to love you? Is that what you're asking me to do is love you? Are you kidding me? That's going to be so easy because I am you. We're the same thing. We're the same. Of course I'm going to love you. This is easy. You're bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So Timothy Keller goes on to say this. Marriage, by its very nature, has the power of truth. This is the sticking part. (laughs) The power to show you the truth about who you really are. People are often appalled when they get sharp, far-reaching criticisms from their spouse, aren't we? Some of the amen. My wife says, you're fat. (laughs) No, you didn't. (laughs) We We often get appalled when that happens. They immediately begin to think that they married the wrong person, but you must realize that it isn't ultimately your spouse who is exposing the sinfulness of your heart. It is marriage itself. When you're in a relationship, a real awesome friendship relationship, it's not the person saying, here it is. It's now that you're married, it becomes obvious. You've got this pride problem. You've got this arrogance problem. You've got this selfishness problem. So today I want to convince you to make your spouse your friend. Let me ask you this. Is your spouse your friend? When you got married, maybe. You thought, you're, I'll be best friends forever. But right now, is your spouse your best friend? A friend who you know will stick by you thick and thin? support you even though they may not necessarily agree with you, and when they disagree with you, they tell you, <laughs> for, your, for your own good, for the good of the we, and maybe even for the me. What, what, what Timothy Keller calls this is, we want to look at our spouses as our friends, and we want to um, project onto them who we believe that they want to be, um, with all their dreams and all their aspirations, and with all their fears mixed in with that, you know this, right? Right now you can think of some things about your spouse. This is what she wants more than anything, but this is what she's afraid of and why she won't get it. You know, raise your hand if you know that. 
So as a person, you can say, I can not think of me, I am gonna think of we, and one way to think of we is to think of she, and I'm gonna invest into her, push her, love her into those things. And, and Timothy Keller calls this the glory self. You know, God gave us our spouses to make us better. And so part of our responsibility is to make each other better. And you've got to be very careful with this, of course. You don't want to tell them, you know, you need to be better all the time. But there's a way that you can say, I'm going to push you to your glory self, the, the self that God created you to be. This is why, again, I say this before, the Catholic Church called marriage a sacrament. Sacrament means it makes us sacred. It makes us sanctified. It makes us holier. And so when you have two friends that are beating against each other, you do become sharper and you become a better sword. Timothy Keller goes on to say this, within the Christian vision for marriage, so if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, this is what you believe about marriage. Here's what it means to fall in love. It is to look at another person and to get a glimpse of the person that God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you and it excites me. I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne and when we get there, I'll look at you and your magnificence and I'll say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth and now just look at you. This is, this is your spouse. Together you'll be in heaven one of these days and you'll say, I always knew you would be a glorified being. You'd be perfect. I saw glimpses of your perfection on earth. I saw parts that needed to be struck off and I'm going to try to help you become that person. I don't know about you, but I want my, my, my spouse to be like that. If I were to take it even further, I would say I want, the, I want my friends to be like that. I, I, if I have a friend, I want a friend who's someone who can, he knows me well enough that he knows how to strike without offending, although there will always be some offense when you're struck, so that I will still be friends and we'll stick together. And in my lifetime, I've had lots of friends, lots of friends. I'm a pastor, and so as a pastor, you have by default friends, right? The church is your friend. <laughs> But I can honestly say that in my life, I've probably had two friends that I could say were real friends. And one of them was like in grade school, so that doesn't necessarily count. And the other one passed away. And so since then, I've, I've not really had a real friend like that. And I'm confident in saying that to you. I don't need your pity because I bet you would say the same thing to me. Most of you, and I, and I, and I know this because I've asked a lot of quote unquote friends, have you ever had a friend like this? Most of them say maybe once, maybe twice in my life. They're rare. True. Would you agree that real friendship is rare? And part of that is because we don't want to tell people a thing or two, and we don't want people to tell us a thing or two. But marriage, unfortunately, or, or fortunately, forces you together where you have to stay together. So you can't just dick, ditch it. You know what I mean? We're done. I'm not your friend anymore. You've got to be friends, and you've got to work through the hurt and the pain and, and the strike, and you've got to stick. All right. So... Um, let me give some practical things. We talked about friendship. We talked about our spouse. So we've done, those are my two points, okay? What a friend is, and your spouse is your friend. And my hope is that you will begin to see your spouse. Wives, see your husband as your true friend, and husbands, see your wives as your true friend. And what I want to do is just give a couple practical things to do, some more homework assignments, okay? And so here's three practical things. Number one, and these are things that I've learned in my life and in some of the counseling I've done. Number one, talk to your spouse. <laughs> I laugh because that seems obvious, doesn't it? And I cannot tell you how many marital counseling sessions that I've been into where the couple had literally told me that they had not spoken to each other for an entire week. You know what I mean? 
And for me and my wife, that would never happen. But for a lot of people, it happens a lot. So rule number one is talk to your wife. You've got to talk. Okay, you've got to talk. And I think sometimes when we're married and we live together and we eat together and we sleep together, we think that we really have nothing to share verbally. You know what I mean? Well, you already know what I had for dinner, so I don't need to tweet that to you, you know. And you already know how I slept last night, so, you know, I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> right? Got to go to work. But the truth of the matter is, is that you can't be someone's friend unless you know each other. And you can't know each other unless you know what they're thinking. You can't know what they're thinking unless they talk to you. Does that make sense? You've got to talk. In order to be a real friend and know each other, you've got to talk. And, and, and you've got to learn, you know what, communication has two things. It has talking and it has listening, right? So you have to say things, and, and, and men are really need this more than women, because women talk. That's just true. Um, but men need to be able to say what they're thinking, and they need to let the woman, the spouse, in. Can someone say amen? Men need to let her in, and the way you let her in is by saying stuff out. She wants to know what you're thinking. She doesn't know what you're thinking. You think she knows, but she doesn't. She wants to hear what you're thinking. And besides that, she can't help you. She can't look beyond the we to the he if she doesn't know what you're thinking, right? So she needs to know what your dreams are and your aspirations. Maybe they've changed. I bet on the day of your marriage, you want it to be one thing, but 30 years later, you might have different dreams, wouldn't you think? And so you need to talk about that. What are your dreams? Maybe you can ask questions. Oh, here's the other thing, listening. So you need to listen. And the one way to listen, and guys also need to learn this, is by asking questions. Sometimes men typically say, okay, I'm listening. Are you done? <laughs> but remember when you were dating, how even the man would say, so, what did you think of that movie? What was your favorite part? You would ask questions. If you had a million dollars, what would you do with it? And then she says, that's a really stupid question, but I'm so appreciative that you're asking me questions, so I'll answer it. I would spend it. <laughs> Do you remember when you were dating, you just asked questions, didn't you? So, you wanted to get to know that person. So, what'd you... my wife and I, we um, were a long-distance relationship. And most people hate it. But I actually loved it because, it for... because we couldn't fool around, if you know what I'm saying. And all we could do was talk. And so we would talk every night for like two hours on the phone. We talked on the phone. And we just got to know each other, asked questions. And I, didn't want the con... I never wanted the conversation to end. So I was always having another question. And sometimes we would watch movies together. It was kind of cool. We'd start the movie at the same time and sit on the couch and watch them together. And we would talk. We, just, we, were, goofy. we were goofy. And then we got married. Um, so, so you need to ask questions. And, and let me just say this out loud. It frustrates me to no end how many people in this world don't know how to be social. Can I just say this? Like, like, there is social media. Okay, we got that. So you know how to blab out what you want people to know. So you, you have to learn to be social. How do you be social? The, rule, the best, I mean, can, you, can I just give you the secret? Here's the secret to being social. And I'll say this. There is no such thing as being shy. Can I just say this? I'm, talk, I'm on a soapbox now. I'm not even talking about marriage. I'm talking about people, okay? There is, I, I don't like that people use shyness as an excuse not to engage with people. And here's why. Because God created us to be in community. We are created in his image to be in community. And so you want community. Now, maybe you're shy in a sense that for you, community doesn't mean talking all the time. That's true. But community does mean having a relationship with someone. And in order to have a relationship with someone, you have to talk to them. You don't have to be goofy and loud in the life of the party, but you do have to talk. And so let me give you the, can I just, I'm just going to give you the key to, to, to relationships, asking questions. All you got to do is learn the art of asking questions. My wife taught me this. She is amazing at it. I typically, whenever I am in a social situation, and I'm not afraid to talk, so I'll just talk. I, um, I talk 
And you know what I talk about? Myself. So the other day, I saw this game. The other day, oh, I saw this great movie. Have you seen this movie? Oh, it's an awesome movie. Oh, you know what? I love sushi. You, you, you like sushi? I like, you like the Cardinals? I like the Cardinals. Did you see that game the other day? Yeah, I saw that game the other day. And eventually, I, what I learned is that my wife is the opposite. She walks up to someone, and she's like, hey, how do you like your new job? And then I'm watching, and that lady says, blah, 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 about her new job. And my wife's just sitting there going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I walked away, and I said, you're amazing. You don't have to talk. You don't have to entertain. You just ask one question, and then they do all the talking. And then so sometimes I've learned that you have to ask more than one question. You've got to get them there, but you can get them there. You just ask questions. It's the secret to relationships, I'm telling you. And what I'd like for you to do is to do it in your marriage. Ask your spouse questions. What would your husband say if you said, honey, what is your dream? What do you want to be remembered for when you die? Don't ask it in a condescending way either. Say, because I love you and I want to know. What do you want to be? <laughs> you guys are laughing at that one. <laughs> what do you want to be? What do you, what, you know, what's, what's, the, what's the meaning of your life? I want to know. I want to help you get there. Or um, he can ask her the same question, right? What do you, what do you dream about? What is it, what do you, when, we, when the kids are all grown up and, and it's just you and me, are you going to be happy? <laughs> what, what can I do to make sure that you will be <laughs> So talk to your spouse. Um, C.S. Lewis said this. You know, there's three. C.S. Lewis has that book called The Four Loves. Eros love is sexual love. Philos love is brotherly love. The, the city of brotherly love is Philadelphia. Um, and then there's um, uh, other kinds of loves as well. He says Eros love will have naked bodies, but Philos or friendship love will have naked personalities. You've exposed yourself. You've told them your deepest secrets, your, your biggest struggles, your, your fears, the things that make you weak. Your spouse should know that about you. Number two, serve your spouse. Remember, you're not just thinking about me. You're, you've forgotten about me. So in order to invest in the we, you've got to serve the he or the she. You've just got to serve them. And how do you serve them? Again, ask questions, find out what they need, and then give them what they need. Um, here's your homework. I want you to ask your spouse this week, what one thing can I do for you in the next few days to ensure that you will have an awesome week? Just give me one thing. Can you ask your spouse that tonight? Hey, honey, I love you. Can you tell me one thing that I can do for you this week that will ensure that you have an awesome week? Just give me one thing and I'm going to do it. Don't tell me to take out the trash. Don't tell me to write the bills. It's not about the house, right? We're not taking care of the house. I'm taking care of the bills. I'm talking about you. What can I do for you that will make you have an awesome week? I asked my wife this question the other day. You know what she said? In tears. I just need 30 minutes to go for a walk. And when she said that, I started to cry. I'm like, that's all you want? Shoot, I can do that. <laughs> I'll give you 30 minutes. Go for a walk. Go right now. Go for four hours for crying out loud. If you need to walk and you need time, I, all you had to do was ask. I would have gladly taken the kids for 30 minutes an hour so you can go for a walk. If that's all you need, I'm failing as your husband. I can give you that. I thought you were going to say something completely. I'm not even going to tell you what I thought she was going to say, right? I was scared of what she was going to say. But, but she just, I just need to go for a walk. I'm like, I got that. So ask your spouse this. You might be surprised there was their answer. And you might be surprised um, what, would, what it would do for your marriage. <clears throat> so serve your spouse. Um, and then the last one is this. Speak into their soul. Um, in, in the Christian world, and I, I get irritated by this, to tell you the truth, we have a lingo and we say things. And so if I'm ever at Walmart or Starbucks or whatever and I hear people talking in the background, I can tell you immediately if they're Christian because they use Christian words. They say like, oh, that was a blessing to me. 
Oh, he's spoken to my soul. You hear people say that? He's spoken to my life. Uh, and that's a Christian lingo thing, and that's the best way I can say it, because it is true, though. It is. Words have power, and you can speak into someone's life or into their soul and change them. Um, I've been a youth pastor. I was a youth pastor for 22 years, and there were oftentimes a teenager, now adult, will come to me and say, Mike, you probably don't remember you said this, but one day we were driving the car together, and you said this to me, and it totally changed the course of my life. And normally I'm like, yeah, I don't remember saying it. Are you sure it was me? I mean, I've had this conversation before. It was that. I never said that. No, you said it. Okay, well, if it's good and it changed the course, you know, I'll take credit for it, but I don't remember saying it. What I'm trying to say is that our words have so much power, and you can speak into someone's life and change their, the course of their life. It's true. And in, your, and in the church, we can do that. In your marriage, especially, you can do that. You can say things to your spouse, and it will affect them. And the opposite is true as well, right? You can say things that affect them negatively. And I want to explain this power that you have. Let me just give an example. This is a real common example. Let's say there's a man who all of his life he grew up and his fear, you know, people have fears, right? We all have fears. Don't, don't pretend you don't. Unless you know, unless you're a ninja, then maybe you don't have fears. But most of us have fears. And most of our fears came from our childhood. Came from daddy and mommy issues, am I right? And so let's say there's a man who all his life he, he worried about wimpiness. He didn't want to be a wimpy man. He wanted to be a man's man, right? This is more common than you might know. A lot of men are worried about this. Why? Because growing up, their dad always made them feel like they weren't man enough. The dad would say something like, well, I'm going to man you up. You need to man up. I mean, I'm going to make you a man. And the boy didn't hear, dad loves me and wants me to be a bigger man. The boy heard, I'm not man enough. And then he got married and he got a job and now you're not in high school anymore, so none of that stuff doesn't matter as much. But it's still there, right? Someone say right. Has there ever been something that someone said to you that you've not forgotten? Someone said, you're lazy. You, you, you don't have a spine, you, you're not dependable. And then you hear that, and it bounces around in your head for the rest of your life. It does. And so they said negative things that change the course of your life because what typically happens is it hurts you so much that you end up self-fulfilling it. It's called a self-fulfilling prophecy. They say you're lazy, and you find yourself often being lazy. They say you don't have a backbone, you find yourself often wimping out. And so it happens. And so a boy, let's say this boy, he grows up his whole life worried about being wimpy. Did you know that his spouse... You have, the power, you have the power to put that in their head, but you also have the power to reprogram it. This is amazing. So all his life, he grew up being scared of being wimpy, being scared of being seen as wimpy, being scared of not being man enough. And his wife, you know what she can do? She can reprogram that, erase it. The only person who could probably erase it. And she says things like this, honey, you're such a man. Man, you're such a man. You're so, you're so brave. I love the way you stand for your faith at your, at your work. You're, I'm, you, you make me proud. You're, a, you're my knight. You're my, you're, my, you're my cowboy. You know, you can, there's more manliness in your left finger than, you know, than any man that I've ever met. You're, you're my man. And you know what he starts to hear? <laughs> I'm a man, baby. <laughs> and I will just tell you this right now, and I'm 100% I'm confident in this. Every man wants, that, wants to hear that. What men want is respect, and, and, and you can give it to them. You can give them that. I'm a man. Why? Because my wife, who I love, she just tells me over. And you know this is true for your kids as well. You got kids in sports. If you're a dad, you're like, you got to you got to try harder. You got to swing faster. You got to do better. It doesn't matter what anyone else says. The coach can say you're doing great. The, the, the teammates can say you're the hero of our team. But if dad says you need to do better, to son, he'll always I'm not good enough. The spouse can come around and say, you're the best ball player I've ever seen in my life. I want my kids to be just like you. I want to, you, you, and he could reprogram it. 
Men, you can do the same thing to your wife. She has fears. She has insecurities. You probably know what they are. All you got to do is speak into their life. Start telling them it's not true. You're the best. You're the best mother. You're the best mother. I, I, would, I wouldn't give my kids to any other mother. You know what I mean? You're, 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 mom, you're mom, my kid's mother. I love you. You're the best looking woman. No, I'm not that looking. You're looking. Oh, yeah, you are. <laughs> I get excited just thinking about you sometimes. Say it. Why not? They need to hear it. They need to know that you're their friend and that you're with them. So those are three practical things. Talk to your spouse. Talk to them. Let them, let them inside. Let, let, listen to them. Ask them questions. Serve them. Find a, go beyond the we and serve the he or the she. And then speak into their soul. My, for my wife, uh, I'll tell you this. Um, she's an artist. She's, when we met each other, she's an art teacher. So painting, um, drawing, pottery, all these things. And even now with the kids, she's doing all these little art things. And we had this party at our house last night, and it was art all over the place. And so I know that however I'm going to serve her, to push her to her glory self, to make her the best Kelly that she can be, for, for me, I know it's going to have to do something with art. Yes, she loves her kids. Yes, she loves me. Yes, she loves the, you know, our, our, our church. But in order for me to push her to what God has made her to be, a lot of it, I think, has to do with art. So a couple years ago, a couple Christmases, I built her an easel out of barn wood. And I still haven't stained it yet. I need to do that. But, but I built it for her because I... Because I'm a, I'm a 90 percenter, <laughs> I always finish things 90 percent. Anyone with me on that? <laughs> the 10 percent is always the details. Anyway, so I gave her this art easel, and I bought her a bunch of canvases and paint, and, and my goal is to give her space and give her time and, give her, and give her, encourage her in that. You need to do more art. You need to do more art. What can I do? Take the kids so you can do some art. And, and even right now, she's, she's getting ready to teach a painting with the twist class, and she's super excited. So I know that that, I know it feeds her soul. She did not want to do this, by the way, um, class, but now that she's looking at art and she's thinking about art, she's starting to get fed. I can see it. Her eyes, you know, she kept me up last night talking about it. I'm like, I just want to go to sleep, okay? Um, but, but she's excited about the art. So that's how you do it. You, you, you serve them. You speak into their life, and you tell them good things. Amen? That's what a friend with benefit is. Now, let me just step back and talk about Jesus. I can tell you that Jesus is the ultimate friend with benefits. Wouldn't you agree? He serves us. He speaks into our soul. He um, uh, listens to us, and he, and he speaks to us. Listen to what he says. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his what? Friends. Jesus doesn't call us his servants. He doesn't call us, you know, his disciples. <laughs> he doesn't call us his coworkers, his partners in the ministry. He calls us his friends. And I think that when Jesus uses words, he uses them, you know, intentionally. Wouldn't you agree? So he intentionally says, I'm your friend. You're my friend. And I'm going to give my life to you. And, he's, and he goes on to say this. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I call you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. You know me and I know you. He goes on to say this. You did not choose me. You didn't, but I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the Father's name, he will give it to you. He'll give it to you. So do you notice that Jesus did those, those three things? He Obviously, he spoke to them <laughs> and he told them some things and he's sharing with them, look, I'm not just calling you my servant. I'm, calling, I'm speaking to you. You're my friends. And he served them. He served them by giving his life to them and by making them... And, and, and by saying, this is who you are, and I'm, I'm doing all that I can to make you more of who you are. And he, and he even encourages them. He speaks into their soul. He doesn't just say, now go do it, and I'll be with you. He does say that. But he also says, here, I, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Remember? When you start to feel down, when you start to feel insecure, don't you forget, I chose you to be my friend. 
I love you. You're special to me. I have a purpose for you, and I love you. I chose you. And that's the way Jesus treats his friends. Isn't that good?